Hello there, and thank you for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. There are many different ways to raise a sapien. There are many different ways we can push our physical and mental limits to what is possible, knowable, or achievable, depending on how we are raised. Many ancient horse people, like the Mongols or Comanches, could perform feats on a horse that seemingly defy what's possible by anyone not raised among them. Which is to say, the culture that was expressed in that group of sapiens created that possibility. Most of us don't have a connection to our ancient ancestors, or the culture they lived in. If we did, though, and we were taught that while living amongst the world we live in, what would we bring back and forth to both worlds? The whole of our life sphere is coming more and more together through events, commerce, technology, which is neither good nor bad. It brought me the opportunity to speak to my guests today and gain the perspective I'm trying to share. But it's also led us into some wacky times. And wackier times to come. How can we contend with our world while living in it? Perhaps being able to move throughout two worlds, more ancient times where we needed to be connected intimately with our environment and to rely more on one another, learn more from our elders, maybe that could help us navigate our current time and our future time to come. Just take, for example, being able to build a canoe, take it, and navigate between islands on the open ocean. Then doing it frequently enough with guidance from others, so many times over, you learn the paths in the water and how to use them the same way we use streets and landmarks in the corner, letting us know when we should turn. Maybe knowing how to do that, you might just be able to better understand the effects of our climate change and have a novel perspective on how we can start contending with that reality. If you listen, you're going to hear Allison in this episode talk about how teaching ancient skills helps root people in today's world even if they're starting down a bad path. How building a connection to their ancestors helps them better get connected with themselves, what they're capable of, and a sense of community that they can always come back to. Something I often wish we thought more of when we see someone skirting down a dark road. That many things from addiction to crime are often a result of a lack of connection. Thank you very much to Rhea and Elson for taking the time to talk and share more of their culture with me, and anyone who's listening. I do encourage those hearing this episode to learn more about the Marshallese, the nuclear testing, the legacy, and what wonderful people and culture they have. They're coming up this year to negotiate with the U.S. government for the testing and fallout from it, and any pressure we can collectively bring for more justice can go a long way. All right, with that, it's going to be our quick intro on how to find us, some quick skipping music, and my talk with Rhea Moss Christian, the head of the Marshall Islands Nuclear Commission, and her colleague and head of the canoes for the Marshall Islands, Alison Keelan. Enjoy! Real quick before the episode starts, if you'd like to listen to us on your streaming platform of choice... Donate to the show, sign up for our mailing list, visit us at bandwidthpodcast.com. And of course, if you like what you hear, follow, comment, or subscribe to the pod from wherever you're listening. Enjoy!
Okay, thank you everyone for your time. I really appreciate it. Um, I'm very excited to, uh, to talk with both of you. With Rhea, Rhea, I'm very excited to talk with you again. Um, so real quick, while we, while we have it, so we have it. Um, Elson, would you just please introduce yourself and then Rhea as well, just so that we can kind of get started a little bit. Yeah, my name is Elson Kellen and I am from the Marshall Islands. Uh, I am uh, directing a program, a cultural uh, program for the youth of the Marshalls uh, based on our canoeing traditions. And of course, we're ocean people, so that's the best program to be involved in. And I just bring out the um, the, the cultural pride and self-esteem on these young people. And at the same time, it's, I think it's a win-win situation because our country, the canoeing cultures, you know, keep stronger and stronger, especially in these uh, time where climate change is affecting our country. So this is the best tool to move forward uh, for our adaptation to this climate uh, changing world. I would love to, I'm gonna come back to a lot of that. Thank you. Uh, and then of course we have Rhea back again. Yes, hello again. Good to talk to you again, JR. And I'm so happy to have my colleague Elson with us today also. Um, I'm chair of the Marshall Islands National Nuclear Commission. And Elson didn't mention this, but he's also a commissioner on the National Nuclear Commission. Well, thank you again for, for coming. Uh, all right, so Elson, I have a question for you. That's what I ask everyone the first time they're, they come in. Uh, and it's, what do you like to do that makes you happy? Oh, um, I like to just do, just go, let me just give you a little picture of where I am. I'm in an office on the second floor of a canoe building shop in a classroom for the kids, and it's right on its seawall uh, above water. So I am about seven feet from the water. So, I mean, seven yards from the water. So. When I look down from a window, I don't see land. I actually see water. I see the lagoon, the beautiful lagoon, and I feel like I'm in a ship. So this is the best part of my job is I look out the window every morning when, you know, when everything's still fresh. So that's my, you know, I, that's what I love about these, you know, this thing, uh, my job. And of course, I'm, as uh, Rhea mentioned earlier, I'm also a commissioner for the uh, Nuclear Commission. So it's really a fascinating job because that's, that's me. It's not part of me, but it's me. I was actually, uh, I lived on Bikini Atoll and my folks are from Bikini and um, it's, it's always a great uh, feeling for me to share the stories of our people not only share the stories, but also looking at uh, possible opportunities out there that could help us um, toward our climate legacy or climate issues. That's, yeah, that sounds like a, a hell of a view. Uh, you painted a great picture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, the, and my office is uh, surrounded by uh, canoes. That sounds great. Do you see, uh, do you ever see any wildlife in the morning when you're looking out? There is a little balcony just off my uh, window. 
uh, and I, birds, sometimes I have to, when I Zoom with people, sometimes I have to turn off my mic because these birds are staying right outside my window. And of course, you know, I don't want to scare them away because they just um, bring a good vibe for me, you know, from morning to that when I leave. So it's kind of like my counseling hours with my birds. I like that a lot. The, the town I live in now, it's filled with birds. I've never lived somewhere where there is so many birds. And it's, it's a quite lovely day to start the, the day, like right about an hour before the sun comes up through the hour afterwards, just so many different varieties. It's I like how you said counseling hours. <laughs> Great. Uh, Rhea, so I want to ask you a question. The follow-up question I like to ask is, what have you done this week that made you happy? <laughs> well, I haven't, said, I haven't shared this information with a lot of people, but I guess sharing it on a podcast potentially makes it um, widespread. I'm working on, I just enrolled into an online MBA program, and I finished my first final on Tuesday, yesterday, and that made me happy beyond words. <laughs> so. congrats that's awesome <laughs> going to, to school while working is a hell of a feat <laughs> well congrats i'm happy that uh, you got that sense of relief and you're uh in that off period now too which i'm sure you're looking forward to that yes thank you awesome uh allison i want to uh you said something that i wanted to go back to and you said that it helps young people with their self-esteem and learning about these type of cultural things. And um, I would imagine some of the adventuring that you take them on as well. Um, can you just kind of help me understand like what's, what the programs, some of these programs are that you do for the youth and some kind of the, uh, um, yeah, like what you're, what, how you are con conveying it to them? Because from my limited understanding is that you, you do a lot of teaching through doing. Yeah, so about, um, about 20 years ago, I used to, uh, my job was uh, going from atoll to atoll to document the, the traditional knowledge of canoeing culture in the marshals. And everywhere I went uh, to do these projects, there were a lot of youth um, really wanted to come and you know, eat, um, hang out with, with the guys. Um, and it was really a great feeling for me because I, you know, I thought, wow, this is great because these young people are actually really you know have a really strong passion on another you know, uh, culture later on i found out you know a lot of them are were dropouts uh, a lot of you know um, did not pass the high school entry exam to get them to uh, high school level so um on our last uh, big uh voting canoe program uh, documentation um they gave me a time to give a speech, so I stood up on the canoe and I said, you know what, when I get back to Maju, I'm going to start a program for the youth, the, you know, the kids that have fell, uh, fallen um, through the cracks. Not knowing that it's easier said than done, a lot of volunteer work, um, you know, uh, but we were, we were fortunate. We were fortunate that uh, we were able to start something, and then from that, you know, we had to work hard to get to where we are. But now we're using this as a living archive. So what we had documented in the past, we're actually doing it and these kids are learning it. And they're still 
uh, into it because they're learning the culture. And of course, one of the reasons is because we have national canoe races, traditional canoe races every year. So, you know, these kids that have nothing to do, they want to be part of something. So having participate in the races that are for the best of the best. And also I try to put them on Facebook, their faces on Facebook all the time and on a website and in the newspaper. And it just gives them that feeling of belonging to something. It really gives them that uh, good feeling. And they are really interesting. You know, they just come in every time and just like it. So, we have a program eight to five every day, uh, just like regular job. And, you know, we provide life skills and uh, basic English, basic math, and of course, you know, uh, counseling, but they, at the end, you know, so, you know, so it's part of the, this thing. And of course we build canoes all the time. And, you know, we put them in the water, they go swimming, they go sailing, they feel so good about this. One thing they don't know is by building canoes, they are actually learning curvature, which is hard to do uh, built than square. And squares are houses and windows and doors. So when they graduate from the program, they, do not, they, they don't just know how to build canoes and understand the culture, but they have the basic knowledge of construction so they can to go and work for the construction companies. And of course we have the GED program part of this. So they come and learn, you know, um, they come and uh, get involved with GED so they can graduate. And we have kids that actually went to the GED program, graduated, went to college, graduated, and they were all dropouts. So it's a positive thing. So using our tradition to educate the young people to be able to face the reality of today's life. That's pretty much what we are doing. And of course, with what the country is facing with climate change, because we have all the climate change group be part of this, that they feel so good because now, I mean, they understand what climate change is, you know, the reality of climate change. And they understand that uh, our tradition actually play a very important role in facing climate change and uh, of course our livelihood adaptation toward climate change. Yeah, wow, that's really powerful. Um, well, thank you for doing that. That program sounds amazing. Um, you, you know, I, 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 I have people always get surprised when I say this, but I did terrible in school. Uh, I was like probably much more like kin to one of these dropout kids that you're talking about than most people uh, would be expecting with how proper I present myself. Um, but a program like that, I mean, I think is amazing because I often feel like a lot of my friends that I had that were the same type of characters were just school was failing them. It wasn't that they were failing school and they were some of the brightest people and it was always, and, and, and just some of the best at problem solving. So it's always blow, it always blew my mind that when I would be like going to school or thinking about it and looking back, cause it's like, they had a little bit more help at one point in time, it would have been completely different. Um, so hearing this is great. Um, and I like how you said it helps them face the realities of everyday life while teaching them skills and, you know, baking and culture and sense of belonging and tradition. Um, that sounds 
that sounds awesome. It, that's got to be a lot, a very rewarding experience. It is actually my uh, my payment. Um, the, the big canoe house we have, well, we have a big A-frame canoe house here, and right in front of it is is a it's a ramp. It's a real long ramp where we put in the canoes in and out of water, but beyond that is a beach in front of Hotelier, and I always tell them that, you know, that beach is where I'll be buried. Uh, so, uh, you know, the the commitment for this kind of project is just, you know, give you the greatest feeling, especially when you see kids actually have gone and from where they were, they are now uh, high school graduates. They are now college graduates. As a matter of fact, our English and math teacher is a college graduate that was once a student here. So we bring those people back because we, they did not just go and get educated, but they also know the process. They know what was, what, what, I mean, they know the life before the canoe program, and they know the process through the canoe program, and now they're facing you know, reality with a regular job, you know, and, uh, you know, every two weeks they get paid. And, you know, because part of the program, we actually have part of the program is the kids actually come and punch in and out, punch out, punch in at eight o'clock, 12 o'clock, they punch out lunch and, you know, have to work. So they go through the process. We even took the next step and gone to different companies and bring job application just so they can learn how to fill those job applications. Once they know, they feel so good, they say, wow, you know, so we'll have a job soon. And uh, we also have give them, you know, a couple weeks in different companies and agencies here. So they work for two weeks just to have a little taste of it. And while doing all that, they go sailing every Friday. They, you know, they have a, you know, they hang out and we sit in the water Sometimes we go out into the lagoon and just jump out of the canoes and float in our life jackets and build a circle and talk. And I think this is what the kids want to do. They want to talk. So they are outside of everything, floating them in the middle of the lagoon, talk about life, what they have faced and what their goals are. And some, they just want to have a high phone in the future but some, they want the biggest job, but at least they have something to work toward using or utilizing the culture that they've had. They've lived for many, many years, I mean, all their lives. And it's a great thing because it's not just that the kids know the culture and the kids are getting educated, but because their faces are on Facebook and in the newspaper, you know, of course we have a small country, so newspapers, you know, and I'm really good friend with the newspaper guys. So I tried to put a, you know, a little quarter page in there with all the kids who are doing things. So that actually, and the parents see that. The parents see that and they said, wow, that's my little guy. That's my little rascal. At the end of the program, they actually come to the graduation and say, thank you very much. And I have kids that have gone because part of the program is we're not just focusing on educating them and keeping them in the marshals, but you know, we cannot control migration. 
but we want to make sure that wherever they go in the world, they're able to use this skill. So we also think it's through JAPCO in the US, APTC in, in Fiji and in South Pacific, and vocational program out of Taiwan and places like that. So uh, they go out there and they, you know, I, I received email and, you know, um, comment on our Facebook of graduates that I graduated 10 years ago. I forgot their names, but they have families and they have jobs. One mother came to me and said, you know, my son have a really skinny TV. I could not understand what skinny TV was, but later it's a flat screen. Yeah. But those kind of stories that really make you feel good and yeah. give you energy so you can do more, trying to find ways to even make it better. And I think that one of the best thing is about floating in the water with the kids is to tell you what they think that could make the program better. So it's not us doing the program, it's them. They are the program. So they gave me the strategy to move forward to their pace and, you know, so, and their interest. And I tell you, you know, it's just a great feeling to see the kids actually, especially on Fridays, like I mentioned, because they go out sailing and they're, they're first afraid. They say, what if we break the canoes? And I said, they're built to get, you know, get broken, you know. So you go sailing, you break it, you can fix it. And that's giving give them that security. They don't have to, they're not afraid. Just that. Yeah, so it, it really, it's a great feeling, especially when you go sailing with them. And you see them the first trip, they're all scared. And then after a while, they feel like, of course, young people, you know, you give them a pen, they think they can write a book, but hey, <laughs> you're just there to guide them. I like that, <clears throat> to give them a pen. I like that, that's good. Um, man, that sounds amazing. You know, I, um, what I, how, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just respond instead of trying to be hesitant in what I wanna say. And really what I wanna say is, um, I spend a lot of my time thinking about transcendence. Um, like how can we transcend our, our any given moment and be more present? Um, and by transcendence, I mean, we always have thoughts and emotions that we, that we can't seem to escape. And um, I often play a game with myself of, you know, who's really in control? Like is my thoughts in control or is my consciousness in control, I suppose? Um, and one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast is I want to understand reality more. By reality, I mean what is really happening in the world and how do we come to grips with it, um, both the legacy of everything and kind of our present moment and the struggles that we're facing. And what I appreciate about talking with, with both Rhea and you, Allison, is how rooted in today both of you talk, both from the legacy of, of, that you've had to endure and kind of how you're coming to grapple with it. But the part of it that I find most encouraging and, and the energy that you're talking about interacting with with these youth and you know going through this type of cultural practice is how you're trying to use your tradition and culture to transcend the moment and to be more prepared for it and equipped for it by not forgetting the past and and, and embracing the uncertain future um it's 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 incredible i i thank you for explaining this and doing this this is I, I'm very 
encouraged to hear what you're doing. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm, it's really a breath of air to hear how much you're talking about both climate change and being ready for it. Most of the time, and everyone I usually typically talk with, it's, you know, bracing for it, but you're, you're kind of accepting it. And I'm curious as to where that type of mindset, where did that kind of germ come from, that type of embracing the future like that? Well, um, I, I think that, um, you know, they are, I have more, my own reality is different than the kids' reality. Uh, I have my uh, own uh, expectation, probably not the same as the kids' expectation. Uh, some people go home and there's no uh, meal on the table. So that's the reality and what can be done with that reality. Um, but, um, you know, uh, I, I always feel that it is important to um, accept that challenges are the greatest tool to face reality. So whatever that you face today, it might be the saddest moment in your life, but it's a great thing because you take that and you learn from it so you don't have to step into it again. And it's, you know, it's also how you look at it because it might be something that is national reality that will take more than just you do trying to fix it. Uh, and, you know, uh, or it might take a family, it might take just you, it depends on how you look at it. Um, climate change is something that, um, you know, of course, scare, scares us the most. But utilizing something that is ours, which is our tradition skill, our canoe, to not compact and not... Um, trying to solve it. Of course, you know, it takes everybody to solve it, but at least to be part of it, to be part of the solving body. So we're utilizing our traditional skills and educating our young people so they can um, fix their own reality using our traditional tools, our traditional skills. Um, one thing I love about this also is that um, when you build a canoe, you don't just build a canoe. You learn from planting the tree. Of course, we say that the seed is in the tree, the canoe is in the tree. And as the, uh, as the tree gets bigger, the canoe gets bigger in the tree. And uh, when the tree is big, the canoe is ready in the tree. So your job is to bring out that canoe from the tree, which means that you have to know how to plant the tree and nurture your land, especially in the Marshalls. We are very limited with land, so you have to know how to nurture the land. You have to know where to build, uh, uh, plant the tree. For, for example, a lot of the uh, parts on the, on the canoe are curvature, are curves. So, you take the trees and you plant it on the windward side of the island. So when the tree grows, the wind will bend it naturally. So you have a natural curvature uh, tree or log that you don't have to bend it or anything. You just 
By doing that, you don't waste land because you know what the, you know exactly what the part of the land you're going to plant the trees. Uh, like a car, you know where to get the spark plug, you know, you know where to get the, the batteries. You don't waste time and just go go to every store and look for the batteries. Or you just you know what? Let's go to the hardware store and get a mechanic. Talk to the mechanic. So that's kind of way we're looking at the canoe. You understand the process, and and to the point where you got all the logs to build a canoe. And then the process of organizing the people, process of maintaining the cooperation between people, the rhythm of the edges as they chop off small pieces of canoes, everything in that process, you understand and you know. And even the names for all the process in our language, it means something. So um, i give you one name, Kujirale. That means eat rocks or bite rocks. Because first of all, our, our edges were made out of giant clam, rocks. So the stone, that means that you eat the rock. And you only use that process when you start seeing the shape of the canoe or you start seeing the, the shape of the house. At that point, you don't really want to eat. You don't really want to go home early. You kind of like, you have so many plans that you wanted to do with, with, in, in, in that house or on the canoe. You want to make extension there and there because you, your mind is seeing the done product before your eyes actually uh, see it. So it just, anyway, that, because of that, you don't feel hungry or you don't feel like going home early. So they call it Fijirabai. So anyhow, that's part of the process. And at the end, the elder who sit on the beach with you during launching and they say, just make sure you don't run on the rock, that coral because that's where the octopus are, or that reef because that's where all the croupers are. So you're educated all the way until the umbilical cord, we call it. That's part of the ceremony. You have to cut the umbilical cord and put the canoe in the water. So that the canoe is no longer part of the island. It's actually independence vessel. And when that happened, you already know that don't go to the reef, it's important. So it's all, all that process, it's, it means something. I mean, it's all, when you, when you learn that process and close your eyes and think about climate change, wow. And of course, because the kids go through that process, they're going to say, you know what, I'm going to be, I'm going to learn how to, I'm going to be a forester. I'm going to be oceanographer. I'm going to be a marine biologist. It's all coming from bits and pieces of the process. So uh, that's, the, that's another exciting, exciting part of um, teaching the kids. You actually learn as you, you learn more than you teach. Yeah, I think I, I think it's often the case that with with teaching. You know, I, I sometimes I feel like when I'm teaching something, um, even if it's something banal, that I, sometimes I almost feel like I'm getting more out of it than actually the person who's understanding whatever it is. Um, I want to ask you. I want to go back to what kind of the genesis of this whole thing really quick, and then I would love to ask you some more questions, particularly about your culture and the meaning 
that you're able to uh, prescribe to everything uh, within these traditions. That's, that's great. Um, what was what was the most when you were going around and you were collecting some of these stories in the culture to kind of catalog and understand and, and so it wouldn't be lost and could be easier transferred and, and, and kept in in touch. Um, what really took you most when you were doing that? What when you were you, you were younger and you were kind of understanding your own culture and what kind of what was the first thing to kind of get you to Of course, when I was young, um, um, it was them days that, uh, I mean, there were not too many TVs on island. If there were a few that belongs to the rich people, they were black and white. But um, what I enjoyed it the most was my dad, you know, would sit, sometime I, uh, you know, just kind of lie on, or on his lap or, you know, on his arm. And he would tell me to close his eyes and he tells me the stories of when he was young sailing and building canoes and go between atolls and, you know, trading. You know, they would take uh, special eggs from here and then they bring in special fish from the other atolls and that kind of stuff. So that was actually, that was kind of like roots of my interest in canoeing. Uh, I, I, that was like my fairy tale. I, every time I see canoes, I see myself on those canoes sailing between atolls. And of course I was on the outer island. so. Uh, you see ships like every three to six months. You don't, it's not something. So it's always something that you look forward to. So I wanted to uh, connect ships and canoes and I wanted, to be a, I wanted to be a captain. And of course, my grandfather was out there always banging on the trees and building canoes and you know, many tools or whatever he had. It took some so long to build a canoe. I don't even remember how to go along to build a canoe. So all those things, I was kind of like in the middle of canoe life between my parents and my grandfather, and of course fishing. And uh, but when I grew up, um, going around, I see that uh, you know I I see canoes. I'm like, oh man, it's a great to sail around, but see how long it takes to build one of those things, and we have to go carry them. And there's so many learning process going through that. But then, of course, you know that was kind of like one of the most fun thing about. Uh, about that part, but uh, as I was going through the islands and we start documenting things, I said, well, it's a planning process. You are actually, you have to really sit down and plan the whole process, but, you know, from the beginning all the way to the, to the end. Uh, and, and you have to understand it well enough that it would work. And in the past, our tradition, um, mostly this this planning process is only done by our chief or our land managers. Not, it's nothing that, you know, it's so uh, it, it's a great feeling to be part of that uh, stage or that group of people and, you know, sit down and do all the planning process. And this is what we'll do, we'll do the same thing here. And it's a great feeling to have it done. What's, uh, what is the Marshallese's origin story? What's the story? Do you, are you familiar at all with the story of how the Marshallese got there or the, the cultural story of that? Well, there's so many stories. I mean, there's few stories out there, you know. Uh, I think one that I, I always tell people is that 
um, we were once Chinese. So people look at me and say, oh, well, you know, you kind of look Chinese. <laughs> but, you know, we're migrators. And, you know, even today we talk about migration. We migrated, as you know, throughout the Pacific Islands, part of the Micronesian Island, migrated up to Solomons and um, Vanuatu and Solomons and PNGs and Palau migrated east of Micronesia. And, and some of us migrated to Fiji. And, you know, of course, you know, the migration to Fiji split and our group came up to uh, Tuvalu and Kiribati and, and then the Marshalls. And uh, of course, that's one of the stories. And uh, we're, that's why the Eastern Micronesia are a little bit different with the hair than the Western Micronesia where they have more kinky hair and we have less kinky hair. And of course, language-wise, um, for example, we say canoe, and most of my uh, Polynesia say wa or wa or waka. And, you know, when you sail a canoe, you uh, land somewhere, and the first thing you do, you do cooking. And uh, they say uh, um, imu, umu, and we say umu. So it's, it's pretty much so language-wise, and of course, it's, it's the, the, the figure on the faces and that kind of stuff. I try to keep on to that story because it's it's uh it's more fascinating to me. Of course, I'm not a scientist, but that's one of the stories that I've heard. But I know that Marshallese are true migrators, so we've been migrating everywhere in the Marshalls since the uh, creation of time, and uh, we're still migrating to so. What What's the Marshallese relationship with the ocean? I would imagine it's it's different than most uh, of the listeners kind of relationship to their environment, especially one where like we can't, we can't, we can't survive on water without building something and, and having some type of tool with us. Well, we're ocean people. Uh, so we have more ocean than land. I believe we're like 0.1% or 0.01% of our land. I mean, if the Marshall is land and 99 point, you know, whatever it is, the ocean. So uh, obviously uh, our, life, our life depend on the ocean. And that's why, you know, when we talk um, about Marshallese people, we talk about migration, of course, uh, canoes. Um, because that's what, what has been happening. And, you know, um, our good friend is uh, part of this changing of the climate, the ocean, and uh, that's why we have to adapt, find ways to adapt, to, to educate ourselves, to adapt to our ocean. And um, what? how long is the program that you, you usually run? Like how, how old are the, the people who kind of enroll, with, enroll in it? And do they leave once they kind of go to high school or is it kind of something that everyone's always always around with or how does that uh so um it's we have six month programs for the both men and uh, for male and female so um and um uh the program we we always say that we're partnering up you know it's, it's not our program it's everybody's program 
so uh, PED is part of it, uh, you know, wellness is part of it. So health and climate change and uh, academics and everybody is part of the program. This is the only way to make it successful. And we bring in kids from, used to be 14 to 23, but, you know, a lot of kids actually drop out of school just to get into the program. So we have to raise the age to, you know, 16, but there's still some problem with that. So we're thinking about raising to 18, just so we have stronger, you know, young people who can handle chainsaws and hatches and carry wood and stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, it's six months program and happens twice, once or twice a year. Hmm, that's great. What, what kind of trees do you use um, for the canoes? Uh, we mostly use breadfruit trees, which is the unfortunate thing is it's our main stable here. So we have to make sure that what we, what we take, we plant. And not only that, but we're also looking at uh, options like marine plywood and fiberglass and that kind of stuff. As long as we don't change the tradition of the canoe, we can change the material. As long as you modernize and not westernize, then I think it would work. And, uh, and that's kind of the way we look at things. Modernize, not westernize. I like that. What's, what's marine plywood? Uh, it's it's compressed uh, pieces of wood that you know it's, they were they were designed to build uh, boats with. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. So combine that with fiberglass and build a canoe. It lasts up to twenty years. You know. So by twenty years, your breadfruit is big enough to uh, build another canoe. So it's a combination. I mean, we're not uh, we're not not building canoes out of breadfruit. We do when they. So when the wood is available, and of course, you know, our drift logs, we do uh, get drift logs uh, from, you know, uh, from South America. It's kind of funny because we would think of it, uh, a lot of the drift log would come in from North America or the Philippines, but it comes in from South America. A lot of the drift logs that have flowed in, floated in, we actually cut pieces and send out to universities so they can, you know, give us ideas of where all, most of these drift logs are from. So it's another fascinating thing, you know, it's not, you know, so we're building canoes that uh, the wood is from South America, from Chile or somewhere around there. That's wild. So the log takes put the current all the way down to where you are. Incredible, isn't it? It just takes so long. And, you know, so we talk to the elders and they say, yeah, well, that's how the, you know, a lot of these, and that's how, of course, that's one of the ways that they are, you know, talk when they talk about navigation. That's one of the things that they talk about is the currents and the swells. How big is the canoes that you build? We have um, uh, we have canoes that are you know it depends. The paddling canoes can be twelve footer, but then the small sailing canoes can be eighteen footer. And I, you know, I have a, 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 a thirty five or forty foot canoe outside my window. So, and a few catamarans and a few other boats. So, uh, we use a smaller one in the lagoon here, uh, but uh, we use the big canoe to sail to the other islands. Uh, so, we sail overnight or, you know, a couple of nights uh, up north or whatever we want to get crazy and go sail to. Uh, 
but it's a great feeling. It's a great feeling that you go from one asshole to another and you see the kids coming out and I've never seen it because they speak before. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's part of uh, trying to share the the enthusiasm of the out island kids. That's a very big canoe, 35 feet. So and it's got a sail, it's got a, like a mast yeah, and everything? We, we got a, a full rigging on it. We actually even have coffee on board. So it's kind of like a nice modern touch to it. Have a little propane inside there to cook some coffee. I wasn't sold already. <laughs> what is that? Oh, if I wasn't sold already on taking a trip on the canoe, the coffee, just put it over oh. the top. Uh, oh, yes. And we have good brand coffee. No, it's not just vulture. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Ria, for the advice on coffee. <laughs> Great. Um, so the how, how long is the distance that you typically go or you, you would go on one of these larger canoes? Oh, it's it depends. I mean, it's, it's you can go as long as you have the the food and the water. Um, you know, we, uh, for example, I actually went on a canoe that uh, went from the Big Island of Hawaii to uh, through Micronesia, and the first lake was two thousand four hundred miles. So it took, yeah, <laughs> it took a little bit over three weeks. You don't see any land, but you see a lot of birds, but you don't see any land. You see. So, you know, there's, you go do the dishwashing. Even in, after you wash the dishes, I come and wash the dishes. Somebody else come and go wash the dishes. Uh, so it's, you know, just to get your mind <laughs> of seeing the same thing over and over. But it's fun, actually, because you fish. And, and, of course, at night you look at the stars and you try to memorize your way using the tradition, uh, using the stars and during the day, then you kind of look at the wind and the swells. And at night, you you navigate with your eyes. During the day, you navigate with your stomach. <laughs> what do you mean by your stomach? Well, you and you feel your way. You feel the oh, swells, okay. and you. Yeah. That's two thousand miles. How was it? Was that a thirty-five foot canoe that you were doing that with? Uh, yeah, 2,000 miles, 2,400, about 2,300, 400 miles, somewhere around there. Yeah. Hey, it, when it rains, you get wet. When it's sunny, you get a bit of sunburn. Thank God for the pigment on our skin that we're able to. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm pale as can be. It's rough. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. And uh, my last voice was, you know, my the voice that I was in it was great because uh, we had the grandmaster navigator from the island of Yap. He just passed away, you know, years ago. But um, you know, it was it was great feeling to sit with the best of the best, the, the navigators on board, and you know, we sing a lot of songs and enjoy, and we just learn. And and the main things you're learning. Every day you learn something. You see different swells, you see different birds, you see different fish. So as ocean people, you need to keep learning about your ocean. And uh, it, it was just great. How do you navigate? Well, uh, some people look uh, navigate using the stars. Um, 
you know, of course, a lot of navigators use the stars uh, nowadays. Uh, Marshallese was no, uh, they were known for navigating using the ocean swells. Um, uh, around the Marshalls, the, this, this um, northern swell, eastern swell, southern swell, and of course, the western, western swell. So uh, once you know where they are, and they, they never change. One thing about stars, you know, they change all through the year. Uh, Sometimes you see them, you know, the star that you see the first part of the year, you don't see the later part of the year. But the swells are always there. Sometimes they're bigger, sometimes they're smaller, but they're always there. Just like a compass. So kind of memorize where your islands are, and then you use your swell reading technique, and it takes you wherever you go. Can you help me? Can you help me understand what a swell is? Yeah. So yeah, that's a really good thing to talk about because you know, when I first talked to the elders, of course, you know, I live on a small islet of the main island of Majuro, and sometimes I come into town. I I commute by boat every day, so sometimes I come into town. There's the wind direction. The wind comes from one direction, there's rubble from different directions. Uh, so when you look at the ocean, it's a little kind of confusing. But the swells are the actual, you know, big uh, lump, lump of waves that come from uh, each direction. And of course, these big swells have many waves right on them. They have the wind waves, they have, you know, different things. Uh, on it, on it, but you, you actually feel it when you're on a ship. You can bump, get bumped around, but you still go up and down, and you know, each up and down tells you where that up and down come from. So that's you know mostly eastern swells are bigger, so you you'll feel the the big eastern swell more than every you know the other three swells. So it's the the rolling waves in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. And are you able to move through them, kind of like highways? Uh, you... they're, they're, they're big, so you just kind of go over, just like small hills coming from different directions. And from where they're coming in relation to, and how they're moving is how you can figure out where you are and where you're going? Yes. Yeah. So once you know where you are, then you know where you, you're going. So that's interesting. So if, if would an analog be that you're on a canoe and you're turning around in every direction and you're watching how the waves are coming and going from you and you generate, it's, it's the equivalent of knowing, oh yeah, there's that, uh, I'm gonna take a left at that CVS that's down the street. <laughs> it's, it's really kind of technical to explain, but yeah, it, you know, it's, it, so, when I first, you know, chat, like I said, when I first chat with the elders, they explain all these swells to me and I memorize them. I memorize everything. And when I went out there, it was a totally different world. Everything that I've learned, I did not see with my eyes. You have to go out there and really know them and match it with the, you know, with the, the, the script. That's interesting. So 
the the swells are so consistent and you're able to understand from the positioning of the the sets of waves that are coming in and out where you are and where you are in relation to everything else and that was the the main way that you know until the beginning of time the Marshallese have been able to move through the different item, uh, islands to like you said some some islands have better eggs other islands have better fish and able to kind of move through them as if it was no different than whatever other normal uh ter- what would that be uh, terrain or uh earth yeah it, it, i mean once you know it, it, it you don't even think about it it's not you don't look for it you just kind of like okay let's just go and then you would just go it's like you drive in the middle of the desert uh i think it's more, you know, that's a better way to explain that you try you drive in a flat desert and you don't see anything and you just say, let's go. And everybody knows where you're going. You say, okay, this, let's take this direction. And that's where nature is very important. So you either look at the, look for the birds or you look at the stars and the wind direction or the swells. So it's, it's already there. So it's, I don't think people in the past were even thinking about it when they jump on the voyages. You know, they say, oh, let's go this way. And they kind of, uh, every once in a while, you know, some navigators would bring up their thumb, uh, uh, their hands like this. They would bring up their hands like this and compare it to the sunrise. And they know how many days or they know how many days they've been out or, you know, so. Use different things, but they pretty much they're like it's like a ship with a, a compass or the you know to look at it every once in a while, but it's nothing. Focus on uh, what can feed you between here and there. I I think I've mentioned this before to Ria, but the thought of being surrounded by ocean. In every direction is so foreign to me. I'm, I'm from the middle of the United States. I'm, I'm used to, I, I recently just moved from San Diego and it was always, I felt like I was on the edge of like a cliff and it was, I lived like really close to the water and it was always something that I would be always planning for if I had to escape to go inland or something. And I think it's just because I'm not used to seeing such an endless scape. So finding such comfort, I would say comfort or, you know, it's, it's so second nature in that type of environment is, is, well, it's it's foreign to me because it, it's it's un unrecognizable for me to be able to to think of looking out and it, it is very similar to when you're on autopilot driving home and you're not really on autopilot like Tesla but you're you're not thinking you're just kind of going through the motions and driving um, except for we're doing it on lanes that are quite, quite easy to see and you're doing it while you're within the elements completely exposed and you know watching a a bird to understand where the wind direction is it's um, it's got to be humbling and grounding at the same time because you're, you're just present. Yeah. And I think your feeling is about the same feeling as what Columbus felt when he looked at the edge of the ocean and said, well, I don't know <laughs> what is out there. <laughs> but yeah, we are, we were, or we you know, were built to be one with the nature 
And as long as we are one with the nature, uh, we can help each other out. We can help nature um, grow and combat, you know, combat the climate change. Then uh, nature, you know, of course, help us to navigate our ocean or our land uh, and our life, I guess, you know. So as long as you are one with the nature and you are confident with the nature, they will bless with it. How have you noticed that the ocean change since you started first navigating on it? Well, the ocean is uh, pretty much the same thing, but you know, there's some changes. Um, where the ocean meets the land, there's a lot of changes. Uh, of course, you know, because of that, the ripple from the land into the ocean, that's changed a little bit. Um, but the ocean that we depended on is the same ocean that is gradually crawling onto our land. And uh, um, as it's changed, we have to find ways to adapt to it. And again, that's where the canoes and many of our life's, you know, traditional skills come in. How how have you seen the land creep up? Is it is it something that you've noticed over a lifetime, or is it something that you've noticed in more recent getting worse? Well, it's 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 getting worse. I mean, um, these small islets I live on, um, when there's king tide, the tide come all the way through my backyard. Or usually in the past, it was just on the ocean side. They just they were this day. And as they were as there, but now with the being tight, I see it, you know, coming closer and closer. Of course, you know, some places they're a little bit lower, so the the tide comes in the back door and goes out the front door. So, and uh, a lot of places, um, I know a lot of beaches I used to go and, and swim when I was a kid are no longer beach. They're just the beach is gone. Uh, there's some rocks now and some houses where it used to be when I was younger, they're no longer there. Even graveyards and that kind of stuff. You know, it's just the island's been eaten up a lot. And of course, you know, um, some of the trees that have, you know, deep rooted, um, they're not healthy that much anymore because they depend on the very limited water lengths in our soil. So once that, you know, now that they're getting thinner, so it's, uh, it's, they, they don't, they're not healthy as more as, you know, as before. Many things, you know, especially here in town, you know, you don't see the, the birds that used to be hanging out. You know, of course, the fish are getting further and further out. I'm not expert with that kind of stuff, but I think that, you know, the, uh, because of the, you know, color bleaching, we see, you know, less and less fish, uh, and we see, um, you know, the, we see that the lagoon that used to feed us with fish and shells, and, you know, there we have to go further and further out. And not only that, but we see a lot of the species probably are, you know, they, we don't see them anymore. So we probably, they're probably still on the outer islands, but here in town, we don't see them. And, um, you know, uh, there's some claim that because of climate change, they have some uh, 
fish poisoning and that kind of stuff, you know, sick, etc. So, you know, there's a lot of changes, not not only the ocean, but only also on land. And um, the again, I go, I always go back to the canoes because that's one tool to really utilize, not only for our sustainable and low carbon transport, but also to help keep the fossil fuel in the in the ground. That's a, that's a lot of changes. Um, how do you come to understand and contend with that reality? Well, it's a harsh reality. Um, it's a harsh reality to face. But uh, I, you know, it's one of the reasons we, you know, it's harsh reality. So we have to, you know, come up with ways to really combat the reality. And everywhere I go, I mean, look, I see changes. And the one thing, of course, you know, one thing that really um, I think is one of the many things that we could do is canoeing culture really expanded, low carbon sea transport, using the sun and the wind um, to combat or to be adapted to climate change. And of course, with what we're facing today, uh, we are, you know, pushing our young people to go out there and learn to study ways that they can come back and help us with these problems. That it's, uh, it's a hard thing to try to process all of those at once. Um, as, as much as it, it, it's, an, it's encouraging to hear how positive you, you think I, I can tell from the moments I've just had talking with you that your 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 base self looking out is quite positive, which is infectious. Thank you for talking with me, uh, especially about such a harsh reality. Um, is it, it? What is your like? How is your tie to the Marshallese culture? Is is that does that help you understand? Because it keeps you keep going back to canoes and all of that as a basis for kind of strength. Is that, is that kind of how you see it? Is today is a, you're faced with similar issues as far as migratory or the unknowns of what brought your people there and now you're looking for wisdom in that to understand and contend with your present moment? Well, as I mentioned earlier, there are different realities and that's my reality and I'm using what I, what I know to focus on that, uh, I, I, I don't want to expand too much. Uh, otherwise, you know, I'm spreading uh, my limited knowledge thin that it won't be as useful. But I, I use canoes just, I know, I, I know canoe and I come from that culture. And I, I, I know what I can do to help people with that, uh, with that, um, Using that tradition, of course, you know I'm also uh, so using uh, my my uh, my story for the uh, nuclear commission, and that's why I have those two. It's because I 
they've been part of me then since I was a kid and uh, they're the only thing, two things that I know the best. Uh, the, my story in the nuclear um, legacy and my story in the Kanoi culture and the traditional legacy. How, um, how, how was growing up on Bikini Atoll and having that as a backdrop because um, there, there's, it's an infamous atoll for the tests that were done on it. Yeah, of course. When I, when I was on the keen, I, I knew very, very, very little about the, you know, the testing. And um, I was still a kid, but I knew that the island was so beautiful. Um, and. Of course, you don't see radiation or the effect of radiation, really. But uh, it's um, I didn't even you know when I think let me just put it this way: when we moved from Bikini was the first time during my childhood days that I knew that something was not right. Because when we moved to Bikini. We had a new house. We had, you know, we had a very beautiful beach, just a few feet from our house. Everything was so peaceful and beautiful. And right next to us is a grandfather that built canoes every day. So it, it was a very beautiful story uh, to look at. But uh, when in 1978. When the ships came to pick, you know, relocate our people or relocate us, I saw a lot of news people. I saw a lot of, um, you know, I saw traditional leaders and politicians and people that I've never met before. So that was a different world that happened just within one week. And then we went, and there was three ships in front of us on the beach and on in the lagoon. So that's something that has never happened before. So it was a curiosity, but you know, I, of course, I was happy because I, you know, I was told that I was going to be on the ship. So I went on the ship and ran around, and um, I went, and my mom was sitting in the middle of the ship, you know, and looking at the island as we departed, and she cries, and I looked at her and I said, "Wow, see, either." missed the island or she's very happy but that's you know every time i look back at my time on bikini i didn't you know i, I always thought that bikini was like paradise and of course it was i there was nothing wrong with it but then when i left when i grew up my mom you know i told you know, of course my mom says did you see me remember me when we were on the ship leaving bikini and i was crying I said, yeah so that's the same cry that my folks, you know, that when 1946 when they left the Kenya, I cried because I remember that day. And she was 20 years old, and uh, uh, during the first relocation and, and the second relocation, she, I was her when her parents left the Kenya the first relocation, and the second relocation, and of course she knew. 
that was it though. Kind of like the end of the you know her I mean she won't be able to go back home again that was it. Anyhow, so that's that was a routine I remember when I was a young guy, you know, a young boy. So 1946, was that the Bravo shot or the, the no, what, what was 1946, the first relocation? Yeah, 1946, the U.S. Uh, relocate uh, Bikini and so they can do their, uh, 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 their testing, the nuclear testing. And uh, fortunately, it was, you know, they moved them. Um, but anyhow, so 1978. 1968, they said, well, bikini is clean. You folks can go back and enjoy your paradise. So, you know, I was born on Kwajalein, Ebay. Of course, that's where the ballistic missile still being tested today. So moving to bikini was a big change for me, but I enjoyed it very much. And... 1978, they came back and they said, whoops, you know what? It's still hot. You have to move. So uh, we left. And uh, we call ourselves Bikinian, but I would safely say that 90, over 90% of the Bikinian today has never been to Bikini. It's a myth. I'm one of the lucky ones. And uh, I'm assuming it's not safe to go back today. Well, you know, there's is sometimes that say it's safe. Sometimes studies tell you that it's not safe. But, you know, it's sad because that's actually where Marshall's canoes started on the Kini. And that's one of the only things that I'm holding that is part of the Canadian, the canoeing culture. What, uh, what a tragedy. I'm, I'm very sorry to hear this. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, however tragic that is. Um, so there, there was that, okay, so there was a detonation and then there was a, t a time period where there wasn't anyone allowed and then they were allowing people to go back and then they said, no one, no one back again. Um, and you also mentioned that there was still ballistic testing happening on one of the islands, is that correct? Yeah, that's quite a Yeah, They're still doing, sending um, rockets out of California So they're, they're testing rockets that they're launching from California to the Marshall Islands still. Yes. Um, is there any, um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming again that there has been some health effects from the people that were living in the islands during that 10 or so year period? Can you repeat that? Is there, is, is there health effects from the individuals who were living on the island during the time period where the, they were brought back into the atoll, into Bikini? Well, there's still, yeah, people, get, people are, you know, getting cancer and, you know, uh, my folks, 
uh, I was adopted, and that's how I got the bikini, but also my biological parents, they were part of the cleanup crew that owned the bikini. So they both died of cancer. So yes, there are still some um, uh, illnesses that we believe that they are part of uh, the nuclear testing that took place in the Marshalls. Very sorry uh, yeah, for your you, loss. Did, uh, thank you. Ria, did you want to add on something? Yeah, just it's hard to find a Marshallese who doesn't have a family member who's affected by cancer. Cancer is everywhere in the Marshall Islands. And, you know, even though the Nuclear Claims Tribunal had a list that limited the types of cancers that were compensable under the tribunal, it's still hard for most of us to accept and believe that you know, there aren't more cancers that are a result of radiation exposure. But um, yeah, what Alton just described is so is sadly such a common story for so many Marshallese. And, you know, I, last time we spoke there, I talked to you about my mother who also passed away from cancer. So it's just, it's everywhere. Is there numerous atolls that are off limits because of the testing? Yeah, uh, Rongelot and uh, Bikini, there, you know, nobody's allowed to go to. Uh, there was some diving, but it, you know, uh, tourism, but it was only like a week. You cannot be there for long. Uh, and of course, you know, the, this, but yeah, so those two atolls are, nobody's allowed to go to right now. Uh, of course, you know, we were told that we can go back, it's clean, but you know, even now uh, the action is kind of reversing. So people from those islands don't want to go back because of uh, the, the number of cancers taking place and you know, the uh, US is you know, telling us that it's clean, but we're not. Uh, for the bikini, and I would speak on behalf of the bikini and say that no, we won't go back and it's not, it's not livable, I mean, it's not livable. It's still radiated heavily now. What a, what a shame. Um, when you were, you, so you were also a mayor, correct? Yes, yes, I was. What, what, what city were you the mayor of? I was the mayor of Bikini Atoll. Bikini Atoll. Mm -hmm. And I, how how much was the radiation front and center with your I mean day to day policy? Can you can you tell me come back again? Yeah, yeah. Um, how much was the effects of the nu nuclear blast, the radiation, a part of your day to day acts as as mayor? Well, it's pretty much everything, you know, kind of focuses on the, uh, the, the nuclear effects because, um, you know, people want to go back. There's uh, tourism that we will also, you know, also, we have also had. And of course, you know, uh, the, the food and things that were given as compensation for 
not being on bikini, all of those, they were all related to the uh, nuclear testing. And of course, you know, with the idea that the American were telling us that is clean to put back and giving us hope that there might be some ways to move forward to re repopulate the island again. And ideas were really going back and forth between us. But uh, at the end, this is, uh, of course, you know, they were saying you can go back, but as long as you don't spend too many, too much time on the island, or as long as the kids don't go and play in the bush too, for a long time, or as long as there is a tourism that people are only allowed to stay there for a week, or you know, you know, you, you don't eat this and you don't that, eat that, just eat um, the processed food, which doesn't give you the radiation, but it gives you the uh, diabetes and high blood pressure and that kind of stuff. So you either die of a non-communicable disease or you die of radiation disease. So, you know, all of those you have to put into your mind. And there's people come into, especially the elders who come into your office and says, so the American promised that, you know, they would treat us like their own children. I said, well, I don't think that's going to happen. Oh, next. <laughs> and there's so many other things that we face, you know, as you know, every day as a mayor. So people think of that, yeah, as a mayor of Bikini or, you know, people, my island like that, they don't have much to worry about because they get uh, processed food. And, but yes, you know, but we bring in people from our, from Kili, where we were, you know, relocated on the first relocation. We bring in people from Kili, you know, get treated because they eat a lot of those processed food and they get, you know, they get, super high blood pressure or they get diabetes or that kind of disease. So, you know, it's kind of like, do we send the people so they can die on bikini from radiation disease or do we put them on the relocation island to die from uh, the non-communicable disease? And many other concerns, of course. Appreciate your honesty with that though. Uh, <laughs> I don't think diet gets brought up enough. Um, that's, uh, back to, I mean, so tying that with climate change. Um, so how much is the, the rising of the ocean mixing with the radiation? Is that, a, is that much of a concern as the, you know, some of these spots are, you know, obviously not safe and, you know, king tides are, are washing in there, and is that something that's that's a concern? Well, many have. Um, uh, so, um, after the nuclear testing, um, there were a lot of uh, debris from the radiation uh, from the nuclear testing were stored in one of the small island of Anuata. They call it the Runa Dome, um, and. Uh, many today have used that as a symbol of uh, radiation, nuclear testing, and climate change. Because I myself actually went there last year, and during high tide, not king tide, just regular high tide, the the water from the ocean in the lagoon, mostly from the ocean, they would come in and kind of kiss the edges of the island and kind of get pretty close to the dome. So many have stated that that is actually, um, you know, the, the, the radiation is leaking up. 
but according to the studies that have been done by uh, DOE, they're saying that that's only 0.01% or something like that of the radiation that actually is already in existence in the lagoon. So if that's the scary part, the dome is scary, then the lagoon has been scarier for many, many years. And you're talking not just any water, but then there's the Bikini, you know, Rongolap, and all those northern islands. So um, that's the reality that we have to live today. And of course, there's different studies, studies that come out. And Ria, do you have any um, additional comment on that? covered it, Elson, and Dara and I talked about this last time too, just the, how, you know, the rune it sits right there at sea level, but, you know, your last comment, Elson, about this being our reality, we've been spending a lot of time in the last few weeks doing a lot of talks about our, the nuclear legacy, and March 1st was the anniversary of the Bravo shot, so there was a long event that took place, a virtual event. And it's just, you know, one of our staff commented to me that and she's quite young that she just hates that this is our reality. And our, you know, our children are still going to be talking about these issues and dealing with these issues. And it's incredibly sad. Um, and it's heavy stuff. But yeah, I agree with you that Elson, Elson has a positivity in him that I think helps keep us grounded and to remember that in this sadness and tragedy, there's also a lot of resilience and a lot of reason for to stay uplifted and encouraged and to keep moving forward. Yeah, definitely. Um, I can understand both sides of that as best I can, um, just as I'm trying to step into your consciousness, because uh, it's I said this before in the in the intro to trying to process the conversa conversation that we had and, and really trying to understand what it would feel like um, is that a lot of the world we live in now is a legacy of the nuclear weapons. It really is. Um, the way that the world has not had any major conflicts and the way that we've chosen to in intersperse and intertwine each other with, with commerce um, into some type of, of net that unfortunately seems to be fracturing in some way lately at least. Um, but it, it comes at a cost and, and a lot of the cost that we don't think about is what happened afterwards and that's a lot of what your reality is. Uh, and I, I would imagine that it is, you know, while, while we're able to talk through silicone and across the, the world and the day away, uh, it it's brought to you by the means of what I just described, but it also comes at the cost of, of trying to contend with that technology and that legacy and the mishandling of it um, and, and the lost fear of it too, um, of what it can really bring. So I can understand that type of frustration because um, it's not going away. It, it's, it seems insurmountable, it's invisible. Um, but yet it's, it's felt in every interaction that you have with somebody that, that cancer has touched, um, especially if somebody so visceral as your own parents or causing your own adoption. I mean, it's, 
it's inescapable, as inescapable as the ocean when you're in the middle of it, I suppose. Uh, and I, I couldn't imagine contending with it, uh, but I also couldn't imagine two better people to do it than the, the amount that I know of, of both of you and Rhea, your depth of, of knowledge on the, on the legacy is, is amazing and else and your, your connection with the culture. Um, it's the world needs more people that have that, that live in that space. It's uncomfortable and it's not fun. Um, but that's why I do spend so much time thinking about transcendence because our reality is kind of the situation we fall into. Um, and it's, it's really the moments that you make while you're there that matter, I suppose, as much of a cliche as that is. Um, at least that's what I try to tell myself in days when I'm frustrated. Uh, or trying to remind myself that I've been in worse places or other, other people are currently in worse places. Um, yeah, I mean, looking forward as, as much as, as you do, Allison, towards both the grappling reality of a rising ocean that you've come, you know, that you've grown so fondly to love, but is, is making it harder to live with um, as a result of kind of all of our collective actions um, it's, it's something that I'm going to be thinking a lot about and that's how, how can we better look back to, in order to understand a way to look forward and see what is in front of us and using the means of what we know individually or what we can learn. Um, you know, it's something I think a lot about as well as with technology. I, I think you hit the nail on the head with processed foods. Uh, and I think most of our lives are being lived with processed something, processed technology, processed ideas, processed uh, lives even. Um, and that type of meaning and connection that we, we lose from even each other or even our own selves when we're stuck in a digital world. Um, it's, it's really grounding to, to hear what you what you were able to provide for, for some of the people in the Marshall Islands to, to be able to kind of bring that connection back, bring the community back. Um, I would imagine it gives a sense of agency. Elson, um, what has been, I guess you, you mentioned that you want to look forward and understand what you can do to kind of combat or, or like have that sense of agency, especially when it comes to climate change. What are some of the things that you've been, that you're working on or, or working towards in that sphere to kind of continue to retool yourselves and also your, your youth? Well, um, uh, I've actually, um, I says, you know, the canoes is, it's part of me. It's something that I always, when I'm involved in, I, I remember Bikini at the Island of Canoes, and I remember my father, my family, my grandfather. But I also, today I'm looking at, you know, a way to uh, uh, utilize this knowledge, not just through the young people, uh, but what can we do to actually share the skills and other skills that can be utilized in the marshals and right now i have a you know there's a current project that we're doing right now we're bringing four atoll at a time uh to the canoe program and we're using uh, the technique of building boats a 
canoes and the catamaran sailboats. Um, so we can utilize them to collect cobras within the lagoon, each lagoon, and centralize, pick up um, spots in the outer islands. Because right now when the ships, government ships go out there and bring uh, cargo or collect cargo, they have to go to different islands. So some islands have 40 to 60 islands. So we're trying to shrink that to maybe one or two islands. And in order to do that, you have to find ways to shrink that, to centralize that. And the result of that will be saving of our limited government budget. Not only that, but um, would be it's a great thing toward our climate change efforts to utilize the sun and wind, you know, traditional knowledge combined at one time. So we're bringing these people to uh, see now we've been teaching them to use different techniques of building canoes. And as a matter of fact, as we speak, they are actually, you know, I had to tell them to stop building, you know, banging on the canoes so we can talk now, but they are actually doing it. And every three months, I'm bringing these people in and, and bringing these people in to learn the new technique and they go home with, with canoes and catamarans and you know, things that they can actually utilize in the outer islands. And to expand that, I'm working with the shipping company or the government shipping agent here. Uh, so we can uh, look how we can link that. Um, and um, I've already started bringing a solar power outboard motor that can be attached to the back of the vessels so when there's no wind, they just press that button and keep going. So it just keep going. You know, it's always remind me of the Timex commercial, taking a beating and, you know, keep on ticking. So that's kind of like the way I want these canoes. Uh, you know, we could take, take a beat, but we never stop. And, you know, we, you, we bring services to the people. We bring services to the wider audience which is the country instead of just the youth but now expanded to the whole country to look at and we're actually working on uh, they call it document but it's a kind of like a textbook a manual of these kind of things so it can be shared in other countries so we're not just looking at Matthew or one or two atolls in the other and we're looking at the whole country and see how we can conduct copy that and have it done in Ponte, in Kiribati, and in South, uh, South Pacific somewhere. And of course, there are many countries that are looking at right now. We're kind of like the, the pilot country. And that's, we're not just doing little thing anymore. We want to expand, utilizing the youth and the people in the outer islands. And of course, utilize the biggest resource we have. We are so rich with this resource, the sun, you know, and uh, of course the wind. And uh, it's very exciting. Uh, you know, it's, uh, again, I, you know, from the beginning, I would say everything comes from the, the source of bikini where I grew up. It's the only thing I remember I can do half that island. And of course, you know, uh, the nuclear testing took place on bikini for the good of mankind. 
bring peace to the world. And you know, we have so many Bikinian in the Marine, in the Navy, in the Army, still fighting for that same peace. And now, unfortunately, we are facing, we're doing these kind of projects because we are facing climate change, which was caused by big countries trying to gain big resources to get rich. And guess who, at the end of the pipe, get all the, well, you know what I'm trying to say. It's, it's us. The small baby countries, we, you know, we deserve Nobel Peace Prize because of the commitment and what we brought to the world. Without a doubt, yes. Uh, the contribution yeah. that the Marshall Islands has to world peace is immense and, and immeasurable. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, pressure makes diamonds, I suppose. Uh, and, and you all are uh, shining examples of that. Um, because it, it, it's something while, you know, uh, I feel like the news cycle in America in the broader world for sure, but I think the news cycle in particular in America is so um, emotional and erratic. I think we often forget, um, I don't know that a few months ago that literally Texas froze over um, or, you know, any of the other striking examples like, you know, the beginning of last year before the, before COVID, you know, Australia had over a billion uh, wildlife, you know, and lives lost. And, um, you know, then we had the California wildfires and, for some reason, it just it doesn't ever hit hit home for us. Um, you know, I, I live not too far from Chicago now, and it's April, and it spent all day snowing quite quite hard. Um, which I was asking my wife, I was like, you know, I, I've I've lived here a majority of my life, and I can't think of any time that I've ever recalled snow this much this late. Um, but something when you have the ocean creeping up or depending on the week of the year, going through both your back and front doors, um, you're forced to, to contend with these, these stories that so the, the broader you know, population, at least the Western world, is um, news cycles. And it's, it's, not, it's a reality that, um, like, as much as you have to contend with the nuclear legacy, that once again is other than the ability for us to, you know, talk through, at least in the machine that I'm using that was, you know, like I say, designed in California and, and developed in, or manufactured in China. Um, however, they, they brand their, uh, their, their way of presenting it. Uh, it's international and it requires minerals from all over the world and all, all of that, just as much as uh, it's invisible to us while staring us in the face. Um, you all have had to contend with it daily um, and continuing only more so. Um, I think there's a lot of wisdom in, in what you've been presenting to us, both with adopting a uh, carbon, you know, low carbon of a future as you can, um, through thinking through some of these legacies that, like I said, are, are all but invisible to us. Yeah. Oh, I, I think Marshall Islands really uh, uh, have showcased, you know, 
the happenings when it comes to nuclear, um, what we have come through, we are the result of nuclear testing. And of course, right now, uh, we're facing climate change and we're affecting, we're, you know, our country is really affected right now. So, you know, uh, we, again, we are the, the, you know, the front row of that. So the world, you know, they can look at us and come and, you know, at, at least help us out. You know, do some studies here, what can be done in regards to climate change in nuclear. Uh, you know, I, I went to Sweden uh, a few years ago and uh, I, I partnered up with this young lady from uh, Canada, Inuit, uh, a group from Canada. And our the theme of our uh, presentation was the melting ice and the rising seas. And she talked about, you know, places where grass are actually growing down the trees. And I'm talking about places where grass and the trees are, you know, being hidden by the ocean. While she's talking about places where grass and trees are growing. And the people there, they looked at us like, what are they talking about? They, they, they've never seen the effect of it. But we have. And I think these are the pictures that we are painting on the global wall so people can see and say, what can we do to prevent those from happening? It's already happening, but from repeating or from you know, stopping it. So it's that time. It's that time that the world has to hold a hand and come up with ideas. And I know there will be some climate change talk coming up soon. So I hope that you know these kind of things will really paint that picture. I do too. Um, you said something that uh, I really like as a framework. Uh, you said in the beginning that challenges are the greatest tool to face reality. Challenges are the greatest tool to face reality. Um, and I think that's an excellent mindset and is, is wisdom, <laughs> especially given our present moment um, and the present. I mean, I, I think if we're really being honest with our reality on the global stage and as a species, because I think uh, something I try not to think too hard about sometimes is how I think most of our problems are as a species now. Um, and I, this is why I ultimately land on transcendence because I think until we rise above being uh, so selfish and recognize that we have to kind of accept our, our place, I guess, in reality, being that we've kind of I swear all the time, so I shouldn't feel like I need to apologize, but I'm sorry for swearing that, you know, the world that we really fucked up. Um, and uh, I, I think we, we, we damaged it because we weren't recognizing, you know, I mean, the word I want to use is power, right? Our ability to use technology and craft things that affect our environment, affect our reality to change our reality. Um, and, you know, the initial effect of that was we were able to spread you know, throughout all of the continents to the, the far reaches of any place that we can possibly inhabit, regardless of the climate that we were in, to then shaping ourselves to not have to be so mobile, to then shaping ourselves to really affect it and create our own sub-environments in ways where we're, we're sheltered in these, these indoors and 
perfect 72 degree temperature of the African savanna that we've kind of forgotten. That's why we like that temperature. Um, you know, and now we're really affecting it and, and cooking it. And um, I think it's time that we, we rise to the challenge of our occasion, which is that we have to really face this. And um, I think looking at the problem is not a problem, but as a tool, as an interesting uh, way of kind of folding reality in a way. Um, and saying that this isn't something that I have to uh, contend with this is something that is teaching me something and is, is useful for something I just have to accept it's uncertain. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, um, first of all, I was, I've been very, very careful not to swear, but I'm just kidding, I'm not going to swear. <laughs> um, but I, I would think that you know now is the perfect time for all the all the kids in in universities around the world to scream out and say, "Wow, it's there's so many things to learn." You know, climate change is one of the biggest things that we there's so many things to learn within the climate change. Let's go and write theses left and right on different things that not only good for us but also good for the world so i uh, i challenge all the kids all the university students out there to you know take some kind of climate change studies and nuclear studies and help this world this is our world <laughs> i don't think people will come from moon to help us out this is our world, and it's the only world we have. And if we don't do anything about it, and make it fun, do something fun as you learn from it. Come up with a different—I uh, don't know—whatever you can think of that it's fun to learn, it's fun to use, and it's help this this little world of ours. I have this friend of mine. He's named Ron Good. He's the tribal chairman of the. North Fork Mono Tribe, um, and he said something to me on on the pod, on, a, on a podcast, and we, we recorded one since, and uh, we ended up chatting for a while after we were done recording. and And I've been thinking about something that we talked about the first time I talked to him, and the, la the last time I did, um, and it was uh, get to know your backyard. Um, and what he meant was just like the broader area around you, and um, understand the species and the life and kind of what the earth that is around you. Um, Cause it, you know, it teaches you a lot and it needs a lot of our cultivation. He, he said something I, once again, I think about a lot, which is um, the way that I'll translate the first conjunction of it is, uh, you know, I would say in the Western ethos or philosophy, um, it, it's especially the Christian tradition is that uh, humans were put upon the, the earth and all of the species were put there for humans. Um, but the, the way that Ron tells it is that it's the other way around, that we're actually here to help everything around us. And uh, I, I've been spending a lot of time in my garden. It needs a lot of work. Uh, in my backyard, it needs a lot of work. Um, but in doing so, I'm, I'm starting to understand more of the, the time that I'm in and the area I live in and how climate change is affecting it from 
species that you know I'm I'm learning are are quite a problem uh, where I'm at because they weren't supposed to be there um, and they're they're starting to take a toll um, to other species that were brought here and no longer can live here. Like the blue spruce is a tree that's native to uh, Colorado that's in my front lawn and and I notice it's dying and I, I now I know that it's dying everywhere in the Midwest where I'm at because it can't it can't deal with the humidity anymore. Um, and even though it's, you know, it should be a temperate enough climate for it, it, it's actually, even though it was, you know, 10 years ago when the tree was planted, it's no longer um, there. So I, I agree with you that I think we should be teaching our youth and, and energizing them with the fact that this is a insurmountable moment that we have to just gear up and look to see what we can learn. And it's, it's collective action that got, gets us anywhere anyway. So you know, try not to contend too much with the tidal wave, but try to build a canoe and learn to learn to navigate, I suppose. Uh, but also just understanding more because, you know, it doesn't need to take uh, climate change coming at your doorstep. It's it's affecting all of us at this point, um, even if it's it's less so. And, and I think as much as we can get to know everyone's story, I think, and especially the extremes of it, because if you're along the coast or you're in more north or more south, depending on where you are in the hemispheres, that you're going to feel it more. Um, but it's something that's happening everywhere. And, and it's as much as what happened in the unfortunate tragedy of the, the testing was um, an understanding of what we were contending with, with uh, nuclear weapons um, is the same as, as what you are contending with now with uh, climate change. I just, I, I, I you're helping me build faith that, that this time we have learned our lesson and, and perhaps listen to some more of the wisdom that you're providing. Yeah, uh, and you know, um, I think what your friend told you, it's like, it's the biblical uh, sense of how we were put on earth. You know, the Bible says that we were put on earth to uh, look over the animals and the plants and that kind of sometimes seem kind of the, the other way around but uh, I think it's it's important that we we do look around and appreciate what we have and take care of what little that our mother nature can provide just have to be creative yes we do well um Thank you very much for your time. I think that that's a, a great place to, to pause. Is there anything either of you have to say? I really value, I'm, I'm glad uh, that we were able to get this on the book books. Uh, I'm glad that we were able to, for the listeners, it took us quite a few times to get this scheduled. And I, I appreciate everything it took to get us to this point. And, and I really I really cherished hearing, hearing what you had to say and definitely going to be ruminating on it for quite some time. So I, I appreciate that. Um, is there anything else you would like to add, Rhea or Allison? Well, I, I guess I just want to say that, like, just, you know, uh, take our part. Uh, let's take our part uh, to face what is the changes that is, you know, the climate is throwing at us. Uh, come up with ideas that uh, would uh, create a better world for us. Make it fun, clean, and really enjoyable for everybody. Doesn't it feel like fun has just gone away? What happened to fun? Yeah, <laughs> fun should be part of anything. It should be a requirement. 
Yeah, definitely. Um, it it's way easier to get through anything if you're having fun, right? That's why that's why so many people sing when they're working or doing anything. It's just make it fun, and it's it's easier to learn and easier to understand. Easier to contend with your reality, I guess. To keep on, to keep emerging. Yeah, if you make uh, work play, then you'll accomplish a lot. I like that. I feel like if I talk to you long enough, uh, I'm going to have lots of little wisdoms that fit into short sentences. Rhea's nodding along. I am. <laughs> yes, I love working with Austin. He, like I said, he keeps us grounded, and that's the wisdom we need to get through some of the things that we have to contend with. But Jayara, thank you for giving our giving us space for. Marshallese stories and Marshallese voices. We appreciate that. Thank you, and and I I appreciate being able to give a platform to it. I think it's it's it, it's a lot of wisdom that is needed now, especially in the moment that we live in with so many conundrums. Um, so I, I appreciate taking the time and, and talking with me.